Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. The COVID-19 pandemic exposes and amplifies what public health care officials, health care givers, and Americans and communities of color have always known. Your health and your prognosis as a patient is impacted by more than just the health services you may receive. It is affected by socioeconomics and all too often systemic racism. Subpar living arrangements, language barriers, and transportation impediments, just to name a few of all those things that affect health and health care, are unfortunately all too present. We see this every day in the COVID crisis, and it is further laid bare in the surging social justice movement sparked by the latest episodes of police brutality. Health disparities are now a topic of broad discussion, and it is important for healthcare providers to take a stand for their patients. That is why we at the Federation will recast Hospitals in Focus for our next few interviews as a new series aimed at disparities. We call it Advancing Health Equity. Over the next episodes, we will be speaking with experts in their fields about how people and policy can be shaped to overturn health disparities and achieve greater health equity across race and ethnic lines. To start this quest, we begin with one of our leading lights in public health, the leader of the American Public Health Association, Dr. Georges Benjamin, APHA's Executive Director. So glad to have you here today, Georges. I'm very much glad to be here. Thank you, Chip. Great. Well, Georges, will you tell us a bit about the work you do at the American Public Health Association and your background uh, for our audience? Well, I'm happy to do so. So I'm an internist who got involved in emergency medicine in the early days of the development of the specialty. So I, I really self-identify in many ways as an emergency physician. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was minding my own business one day and, and got uh, offered to be the health commissioner in Washington, D.C., uh, and I kind of been in and out of uh, emergency medicine, public health for a while. And then I ultimately stayed in public health. So I've been in public health now since uh, easily the early 1990s. Uh, and I've been at the American Public Health Association for about the last 18 years. Now, APHA has been around since 1872. And so we're the nation's oldest and largest public health association, certainly in America, probably in the world. And we are the, the professional society for people who practice public health. But we're a 501c3, so in many ways, we're a cross between a trade association and a consumer group because we really don't have a lot of pocketbook issues. So we're really always about advocating for your health. Let's get right to it uh, in terms of the kinds of issues I raised in my introduction. Will you define for our audience, from your view, Georges, what are social determinants of health? You know, the, the social determinants are those societal things that empower you to get good health or can hinder your ability to have good health. So let's think about that. About 80% of what makes you healthy actually occurs outside the doctor's office. And you know, that's, a, that's painful for me to, to admit, <laughs> but, but it's true. So that if you don't get a good education, it's difficult to have good health literacy. It's difficult to have adequate employment. And so education plays an enormous role. In fact, high school graduation turns out to be one of those defining moments in many people's life. So the people who've graduated from high school do much, much better than people who don't. We know that women and the correlation between women's education and their child's well-being 
in the first year of life is a strong correlation. Now, whether or not that education is a surrogate for class or income or, or some other function is not real clear, but we know that it correlates. Food security, food insecurity uh, is a big deal. You know, when I was in Washington, D.C., there was not a grocery store in the poorest part of town. Uh, this was east of the Potomac River in what we call Ward 8. And people had to get good groceries. You had to get on a couple buses and walk a bit to get that. But you could get high caloric, high fat, low nutritious foods in many local stores on the corner, as well as lots of beer and wine. So food insecurity plays a big role in people's ability to be healthy. And then if you think about the fact where you live, safe, affordable housing plays an important role. You know, the, the solution, to, the health solution to homelessness is a house because it stabilizes the health intervention. You know, if someone has a place to live, then we in the health community can be more effective in engaging them each and every day, mailing them or calling them, even if they have a cell phone, becomes easier if they have a place to live. We know that they're gonna be theoretically warm in the winter and cooler, cooler in the summer than they would have been if they're living out on the street. And again, theoretically, they can fix nutritious meals uh, if they know how to do so and if they have the, the fiscal means to do so. So those things collectively dramatically influence your health. And increasingly, we in the health community are understanding how we can partner with organizations that are not with health as their first mission to try to make it more functional for people and easier for people to uh, improve their own health. How do we begin to focus on some other issues that seem parallel here? Do racism and discrimination intersect with health and dis these disparities that you see? So race and race racism, not race, but racism is a social determinant of health. And so let's talk about the whole issue between race and racism. So first of all, race is a social construct. It is artificial. It doesn't have much of a biological basis. You know, 99.9% .9 of all of us, our genetic structure is the same. Now, granted, that 0.1% can make an enormous difference around therapeutics and people's response to certain kinds of medications and diseases in some cases. You know, obviously there are genetic diseases like Tay-Sachs disease and sickle cell anemia, which tend to track in, in certain groups. But race is in many ways a surrogate for, for a range of things, but genetically we're, we're all the same. Racism is this false belief that one group of people is superior to another group of people. And it is a real problem in our society because racism falsely and inappropriately disadvantages some groups. It inappropriately advantages other groups. You know, this is kind of the, the white supremacy argument. And it really disadvantages the whole society. So when you have someone who's been disadvantaged, we don't get the value of that individual's thoughts, engagements, and contributions to society. You know, if you think about it, Charles Drew, who was obviously very famous for his work on blood transfusions, we would not have had his brilliance had we continued to discriminate uh, against people of color during the war when he helped us 
um, saved millions and millions of lives because of his work on blood. The number of women we saw on this, this, this very famous movie, Hidden Figures, that we're all seeing today, we would not have been benefited from those women's brilliances had we totally excluded them. Now, as you know, there was discrimination in those days, but fortunately, we were able to grab them and utilize their expertise and try to improve the health and well-being. We would have not got to space without them. Uh, truthfully, navigating our healthcare system can be complicated for any one of us. But what are the ways navigating healthcare can be particularly challenging for minority communities? You began to touch on that. And what are providers doing to mitigate these challenges? Well, I think, I think the first problem we have, of course, is that obviously the social determinants for many um, communities of color are, are, are problems. You know, the lack of health insurance coverage um, for everyone in this country is a big problem. The fact that we obviously have a very, very, very complicated patchwork system uh, in our country, not only just on the financing, but on the service delivery system, so that understanding how to navigate that system is a problem for, for everyone, regardless of race or income level. I mean, anyone who's had to help their parents navigate the uh, Medicare system knows what we're talking about. But I do think that we all bring a bias to everything that we do based on our own cultural experiences, how we grew up, what we experienced, what we know. Uh, and we often make the assumption that everyone has had the same experience and sees things through the same lens that we do. So, for example, we don't all remember the fact that the prior to the passage of Medicare, we had segregated hospitals and segregated you know, there were African-American physicians in the mid-60s could not be active members of the American Medical Association. So that we have, we had constructed a system which was segregated, which discriminated against people, and to which people didn't all get the same care. So as we think about the fact that we have these historical differences in our healthcare system, we have to first recognize that the biases that we all bring to the table, and then look at whether or not we've constructed systems in our healthcare system, which by their very various construction, both purposely and non-purposely discriminate against people. An example, quite, quite frequently, um, people get very disturbed when uh, patients, particularly low-income patients, miss appointments and don't recognize the challenge for many of them to actually keep those appointments. And so we don't construct uh, systems to A, remind them or aid them to get um, to the doctor's office. By the way, if we put those systems in place for everybody, it would help everybody, you know, make sure they keep their appointments. And in fact, increasingly now with the new technologies, personal reminders to get to the appointment, um, helping people get to their, their appointment, having office hours on weekends, um, in the evening, recognizing that people who do shift work certainly can't often, it's not easy for them to get to the doctor's office. Those kinds of things help mitigate some of these structural problems that we have in the system, which in fact go through the lens that everybody has a Monday through Friday day job, everybody has the economics to get to work, and, and everybody, again, through the lens in which I grew up, because I grew up in a middle-class family, that's how I thought. But when I started working in I, I was the chief of ambulatory care at the D.C. General Hospital in Washington, D.C., 
which was a the city's public hospital, boy, did I get a lesson as a middle-class African-American male in terms of the challenges that many people had of simply getting to uh, their, their uh, appointments each and every day. So I guess we just have to look through a different lens if we want to take care of folks in, in our healthcare system, recognizing how complicated it is. You know, seeing the problems is often the simple part. I mean, they're just so clear as you described them. The hard part is tackling this long history and system of racial and socioeconomic disparity. And there have been attempts made in the past. What is different, hopefully, this time as we try to tackle these disparities that uh, people have been talking about for years? I think what we're now beginning to acknowledge it. That using the word racism, people don't duck for cover. Well, people are getting much more comfortable talking about it. But the first step is acknowledging that it exists. And, you know, there really are three types of, of, uh, of components of racism. There's structural racism, which a lot of people don't quite get. You know, this is, oh, my God, slavery is gone. So that racism must must be, you know, and I don't I don't hate people. So it must not still be there. Well, we still have redlining. We still have differential access to resources. Again, we still have structured many of our health systems, so they disadvantage some patients and you know, unfairly advantage others. So there are structural things that we can use to address that, even though we may not have, and they may have originally been designed to, to disadvantage people, but we, we, can, we can fix those today. Obviously, everybody understands this whole idea of personally mediated racism, where obviously I think I'm better than you and therefore um, I treat you differently. You know, for me, it's it's when somebody follows me around in a store um, based on race or what's happening with COVID, by the way, right now. You know, there are a lot of African-American men that really don't want to wear that mask because they're afraid of being personally profiled, you know, thought of being dangerous. So they don't want to wear the mask. They have to be very careful doing that. And then obviously um, this whole issue of internalized racism where people don't feel that they're valued. And I think as a health system and our health providers, We've got to recognize all three of those aspects and begin to create a society where everybody feels valued, where every person who comes up to you who may not look like you or may speak a different language, recognize their personal value and, 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 and think first before you profile them. Uh, and then, you know, deconstruct all the systems we put in place that don't make it easy for people to get into the, into the office. You know, the easiest one to think about is what we do with people with disabilities, right? There was a time when we, we forced everybody to walk up steps and, and now we have ramps. And we weren't trying to disadvantage. We simply didn't think about it. And they had to tell us, look, we need help getting up these steps. And so we created ramps to help them get, get by each and every day. George's COVID-19 is devastating for millions around the world, obviously, but it has been particularly disproportionate in its impact on racial and ethnic minority groups. It's hard to find a silver lining, but if there is one in all of this, it does, in a sense, give us incentive to zero in from a public health community and public policy maker standpoint on affecting change. What should policymakers be focusing on right now regarding these communities of color and others who are really disproportionately impacted by COVID? You know, Chip, we always knew those disparities existed. And I got to tell you, even I didn't think that these disparities would express themselves in such an obvious, devastating manner. I, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that these communities are more at risk. 
and that if someone gets these diseases, it's because of exposure, because they're public-facing jobs, meatpacking plants, working in uh, chicken farms, bus drivers, uh, people that are working in, in grocery um, as grocery clerks. Those folks are, we call them essential workers, in addition to us healthcare workers, they're essential. And we, we really didn't treat them that way when it came to testing and putting in systems to protect them early on. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we will do that. So we will think more thoughtfully about messaging their risk to them, making sure that we provide them the personal protective equipment that they need and making sure that they get it as well as healthcare workers, that the testing is done in communities in which they live. So they have easier access to that. You know, many of these folks are on public transportation because they don't own a car. And saying that we're going to have a car for um, driving testing just doesn't work. That's going to be helpful. And then making sure that the uh, contact tracing that we do for these communities is such that it's done in a culturally competent way. So people using the language in which they speak. So many of these these individuals obviously don't um, don't have English as a first language, particularly if they're Latinx, and making sure that we um, think through that and also thinking through cultural issues. Our nation is going through a time period, which I think is terrible, where we're, we're stigmatizing immigrants and scaring them basically from coming into the healthcare system. We have to address that. Because I got to tell you, if you called me up and said that I was someplace and I was exposed to someone who had COVID and I didn't know you, obviously I'm going to be a little reluctant to give you give them my information. And if I'm an immigrant and I'm worried about someone coming and taking me away or taking my family member away, even if I'm here legally and all, quote unquote, my papers are in place, I'm still going to be concerned about that. So we're going to have to make sure that people, that we build that trust on contact tracing. Uh, and then, you know, the big issue now is this whole issue of who's going to get the vaccine once it's available and how we're going to equally distribute that. How are we going to do that based on risk? How are we going to do that in a way to contain the disease? And that's going to require a very, very broad community conversation so that everybody feels that the vaccine A is safe and effective. That's the most important part. And then the fact that we're treating everybody in an appropriate way that they have access to not only the vaccine, by the way, the current therapeutics that we have today, making sure that people have access to that uh, in a weak, equal way is going to be very, very important if we're really going to get our hands around this outbreak, because if you don't do that, infected people will hide and not be seen. They will, of course, infect other people, and we'll never get our hands around this outbreak, as well as this will be uh, the people that will get sicker and die will be will do so in a desperate manner, which is not certainly what we in the healthcare community want to happen. Well, hopefully we'll have that problem in the sense of dealing with the vaccine, because right now, uh, we're so stressed in all the communities by this virus. Let's turn a bit, though, uh, to your work. And could you uh, tell us a bit about your Generation for Public Health program? What is it? And what is APHA hoping to achieve through this program? You know, we um, recognized several years ago that the United States was not the healthiest nation. Now, obviously, you know, if you, if you, if you get sick, I would admit this is where I want to be. We have extraordinary healthcare providers. Our hospitals are the best in the world. 
but it requires several things. It requires a get into the system card, i.e. an insurance card. It requires nothing to go wrong in the healthcare encounter. And we just haven't figured out how to do that on a, on a very predictable basis. In addition, as I pointed out, 80% of what makes you healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. And so while like most associations, we have paid members, we wanna, we wanna expand our reach so that we actually influence everyone in our country to help us become the healthiest nation. So we created this concept called Generation Public Health to give everybody a place to go, you know, to be part uh, of our collective, whether it's people in, in every community, whether or not you're a member of the American Public Health Association, meaning you're a paid member, whether or not you are part of the American Hospital Association or the American Medical Association or the National Medical Association, or your federation members. They're all welcome to be part of this because we think of it as a movement, a movement that is designed for us to all work collectively to make sure that the United States can become the healthiest nation. Now, we're not saying that, you know, that in, a, in an arrogant way that the U.S. has to be the best, but we are saying that we're not the best and we ought to be, considering the fact that we spend over $3 trillion and we're not getting the best health outcomes. So if we look at that as a way to be competitive so that we kind of, we dare you to be the best nation. And we're trying to get everyone to be part of that movement and help us do that in a collective way by talking about health, with, by working across sectors, you know, trying to get the business community, the faith community, the education community, all be part of this movement so that we can all move forward in the same direction with the singular goal of improving the nation's health. Well, I wish you success with that program and, and we'd be glad to be part of it. Let me close with one further question though about disparities. Uh, what are the ways the hospital community can become more involved in solving some of these, frankly, racial disparity issues that confront us today? Well, you know, hospitals quite often are, well, they're always, you're always in a leadership role in your communities. But quite commonly, you are the biggest employer in town. And so you often have the opportunity to be what I call the chief health strategist in your community. You have the opportunity to do that for the nonprofit hospitals. They have a community benefit obligation. For the for-profit, they don't necessarily have that obligation. But quite commonly, you assume that obligation anyway because you always do things to help the community. And so I think, first of all, looking at the health outcomes in your community, working with your health, your local health agency or your state health agency to understand what the, the data shows around what the needs are in those communities, and then engaging those communities as part of a collective, providing leadership. If nobody else is doing it, you can step up and doing this um, in a geographic way so that you're actually saying, look, we're going to improve that community, um, making sure that everyone in your institutions are culturally competent. Um, that you have the resources there to make sure that you can communicate effectively with your patients, that you look at, at, at programs so that patients don't fall through the cracks, that we try to get rid of some of this complexity that we have in our health system, that you create systems with no wrong door to go in. You know, if someone shows up for a dermatology appointment um, within your health system uh, or your hospital system, that someone's saying, boy, you know, we noticed you're, you're one of our patients, you've been with us for a while, but we noticed that you haven't had your flu shot this year. 
would you like to would you like to be referred to someone to make sure that that happens? You know, those kinds of things. If you go through an appointment and your blood pressure is is too high, quite you know often that is just a, a movement down to the emergency department. But sometimes it's a call to their primary care provider so that you're providing more holistic care for that patient. Assuming their blood pressure isn't too high, they need to go to the ER. Just not just say, look, your blood pressure is high. Um, you need to go out and make sure your doctor takes care of that. But enabling patients in many ways to get that care so that their trust in the healthcare system becomes at a higher level than we have it today. Because quite frankly, all of us got into this business to improve people's health. And, and while we might think of ourselves as a business, uh, at the end of the day, yeah, that's, that's what we do because that's how the economy in a, in, a, in a country like ours works. But at the end of the day, we're really all about improving the health of the community. And if we think of that as our, our number one goal, then both the economics will follow as well as the trust and the success of our enterprise overall will, will follow that. George, uh, you've given us so much to think about today. I'd like to express our appreciation for your perspective and just thank you so much for your leadership. So glad you joined us. Chip, no, thank you very much. And I, um, I, I want to thank your members because you folks just do amazing work. And uh, for, for those of you who know, Chip and I have worked uh, together over the years and, and he's just an amazing guy. So let me just give him a shout out as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at CHIPCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.